Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 78. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm the tramp. <laughs> and I'm some blind woman. And uh, our double feature today, if you couldn't already tell, uh, City Lights by Charles Chaplin from 1931, and Three Days of a Blind Girl, the 1993 film by Chan Wing Chu. Now, Eddie, I know uh, you're probably trying to answer the age-old question, is the pussy better if she can't see how small your dick is? Um... But why did you uh, <laughs> pair these two films for us? God damn it. We usually at least get like 20 minutes in before, like, so if someone who's checking out the podcast for the first time, but whatever. Yeah, what if the Warner Bros. executives <laughs> are listening to this and they want to turn it into a movie? Not anymore. <laughs> um, let's table the thought of the Warner Brothers adaptation of Extended Clip, but I wanted to answer a different question. I wanted to see if true love was blind. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, City Lights. This movie, how is it? Uh, City Lights. Well, you got a little tramp, a blind girl, a bipolar drunk millionaire, and uh, way more emotion than any film should probably have. Sounds like my Twitter timeline. <laughs> Damn, dude. You guys are going off today. You guys won't let me get a word in edgewise. <laughs> No, I mean, I guess it's a minimal narrative, but Chaplin wasn't a minimalist. You know, he rather used a sparse amount of stylistic elements to create kind of the most maximist, maximalist uh, melodramas that he could, all stemming from the little tramp just clowning around, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, it's a funny picture. It's a nice movie. Uh, it also completely overwhelms me with emotion in a way that few movies do. And uh, I think perfection is like a very unproductive way to talk about movies. But if someone asked me what a perfect movie was, I think City Lights is a pretty easy thing to point to. I think also like if um, if someone has was skeptical or wanting to get into silent movies, I think this is a great place to start too. Even though it does incorporate sound in yeah. its own way, but you think silent movie, you think they're not saying dialogue. So that's how I'm thinking <laughs> of it. When you say, you know, you consider this movie perfect, too, it's also interesting because, like you said, this I think watching it this time is pretty narratively discursive and kind of just will, you know, uh, use moments to create, like, comedic momentum for, like, these uh, these bits Chaplin is doing. But it, I think I think the and the ending is, of course, you know, well talked about, considered mm -hmm. one of the best endings of all time. But the way it's like the film is structured and then you kind of have, like this obtuse like five minute epilogue in I think really just kind of I mean I think it's people think of it as one of the best endings of all time because it is because yeah. it like it <laughs> it threads all of that together in a way that just makes it you know it's already funny and you know touching at moments but just really yeah real punch to the gut there at the end that really puts it all together yeah I mean top off what you were saying the structure of it really did take me aback this time because like I feel like this is often like something that people say as like a criticism of movies, but at points it does feel like 
like the sequences are so grand it feels like a bunch of short films when they're doing like the like big comedic bits but Chaplin ties them together so well I mean just because of like the recurring character of like the the millionaire and just like setting like taking place like um the, the outside of the store that we see in the beginning and and I think there's like this lovely unity that makes like so many of the sequences and moments stand out but then it coheres into something much larger and beautiful and so this is also as Malcolm uh, referred to there being sound in this I, I wanted to talk about the sound because it's more stylized as a silent movie than it is a traditional silent film uh, he is using synchronous sound here. There are sound effects. There are uh, sound cue- like the music is. It's not like other silent films where it's like, oh, what soundtrack do I watch this with? You know, yeah. uh, there is a built-in soundtrack with cues and you know people talking like the loon- uh, the the Peanuts teachers kind of. Yeah, I, I think his incorporation of sound in this in modern times is really fascinating where he's struggling to add that element into his cinema. Or I don't know if struggling is the right word, but he's hesitating to. Mm-hmm. And he's just showing kind of the last limbs of what the silent film form could be, even integrating sound into this dialogueless film. Yeah, I think it is like it is some kind of, you know, maybe not rejecting the times, but kind of, you know, grasping on to you know what is left of the silent era you see a lot of you know stars who got skipped over once sound came and uh you know chaplin of course his sound movies weren't as successful but had a lot more success considering you know someone like buster keaton Mm -hmm. or something like that but also like i think you know knowing chaplin a little bit more now i think being familiar enough with chaplin this rewatch uh yeah it just i think there's the kind of not the the way it's structured in like a loose manner really struck me back because like I think of something like the idle class or whatever that's a pretty like efficient movie that has like a one theme that it's driving home very mm-hmm. well and it does it it's very good whereas this is like something more ethereal or, or you know I, something that there's something about this movie the way it melds its melodrama and comedy that just uh I don't know, it just feels much more special. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm totally right there with you. I think something like the idle class, Chaplin's dual role there, uh, really works toward it being just like a spectacle of comedy that still has a social message, mm-hmm. whereas his features are a lot more focused on the melodrama and using the social message and the slapstick comedy all like in service of the drama and the social message, I guess. So the opening gag, after I just said, you know, all that about social message, the opening gag is he's on a statue that they unveiled and uh, he gets poked in the butt a few times. It's pretty funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, really just, I mean, this get the first time I watched City Lights, maybe I didn't take to it that much. I thought it was good. It was maybe the first silent film I had ever seen like eight years ago or something. Uh, but every time I've watched it since... Uh, I've laughed harder and harder at this opening scene 
because it is just a spectacle of buffoonery, but also him just like going against the grain of, uh, you know, the system and how the rest of the city operates in opposed to the tramp. You know, the whole world is out to get the tramp because that's what it's like when you're a poor person in the cinema of Charlie Chaplin is the, the whole world is out to get you. Uh, so, you know, he's just trying to catch a little nap on this, like, uh, statue that has a tarp over it. Turns out it's a major moment of embarrassment. I mean, he does it so well in, like, just a few simple gags to, like, really do, all like, such pitch-perfect, like, mockery of the bourgeois class. Like, I mean, you're talking about him incorporating, like, the sound, the Charlie Brown parents, uh, sound there, just, like, making a mockery that they're saying nothing, um, I think it's really one gag that uh, really got me this time around was when they like have to do the, the pledge in between and stop like really <laughs> um, like scolding him. And there's that little awkward beat. And it's just like such a like right out the gate, like comedy of manners style stuff that uh, really hits. And Eddie, when you're saying like uh, the whole world's out to get the tramp, right? This could seem like maybe uh, kind of like a depressing milieu Mm -hmm. or something like that but i think what makes this movie great is kind of like the demeanor of the tramp and kind of like you know this i love this quality in movies i feel like i find it in like uh, james l brooks movies too but like characters who kind of refuse to accept the cruelty Mm -hmm. of the world and like uh are relentlessly trying to be positive about it even though you know world constantly kicks them down it's a very uh powerful uh not message but it's just like to see someone do that over and over again and you know to varying degrees of success it's like it is it's emotionally told yeah seeing a loser who like so desperately wants to be happy and is like bucking against it i think it's like you can't help but like feel endeared to that type of character i mean especially because chaplin is is playing it so well yeah never feel sorry for himself (laughs) uh before the plot properly gets started after that intro spectacle uh we see him look in a store window and you know after making his way through these busy streets and these streets are so much busier than they were in the early chaplin two reelers which kind of take place in the similar milieu with the tramp you know uh but of course here in the features he's much more masterful in his form which includes his use of background actors but the whole city is passing him by and he looks at this model in the window and he's just kind of like uh, the, gazing at the mannequin while the whole society is just passing him by and you know kids are laughing at him and pulling at his loose threads in his pants and stuff like that which kind of sus I, I get like making fun of a weirdo but like pulling at the loose threads of his pants come on <laughs> I thought you were re- reversing that but yeah <laughs> oh oh no, no, no I mean look Chaplin had his issues we're not gonna get into that on this podcast Staying clear of the drama. Yeah. I'm above the drama. <laughs> All this drama nowadays yeah. really gets me down. <laughs> Shut up and enjoy the movie. <laughs> he then meets the the infamous blind girl, <laughs> played by Virginia Cheryl. Uh, she is a blind woman who he falls in love with at first sight. And obviously there's like a lot at play here in terms of the gaze, the classic male gaze, you know, uh, and the blind woman's uh, inability to return the gaze and, you know, the very one-sided romance. And it's like, does 
Chaplin's just like ethereal sense of empathy and love that stems from his character? Does it, you know, transfer just through his touch and his actions for this woman? And uh, this movie says that, yes, it does. You don't even need to look at the the star of the silent <laughs> films to be affected by him. You'll you'll just fall in love with his actions, you know? <laughs> <laughs> kind of bouncing off of that, like to think of the characters in this movie, you know, Virginia Cheryl as the blind woman, and uh, even the drunken millionaire he befriends. Chaplin is encountering encountering people who are kind of like in crisis. Oh like, yeah, and like he like which also brings it back to the James L. Brooks thing. I yeah, mean, the mm-hmm. the millionaire and the bipolar millionaire in crisis is a total James L. Brooks character. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. And I think he's a great character, from um, of course for like a comedic potential, right? You know, the bipolar mood swings of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. You know. It's it's going to lead you to some extreme places. Yeah. Well, Chaplin meets the uh, this character played by I have it right here uh, played by Harry Myers as he's attempting to commit suicide and it's like second week in a row are all silent movies about people throwing themselves into the ocean or what? <laughs> Great Depression. Well, I guess I guess no, it was yeah. pretty depressing. Yeah, yeah. It yeah. Was, they called it that for <laughs> it wasn't so great. Um, so he meets Harry Myers and you know becomes his best friend in the world very quickly and uh, it, it's like that classic Chaplin class ascension base of comedy where it's like he's hanging out with a rich dude. There is just all sorts of gags for him to do. We talked about this in our Fairly Brothers series where the Dumb and Dumber guys experience this in both movies and, well, both Fairly Brothers movies at least. Uh, and it happens a few times in other Fairly movies, but Chaplin is kind of the god of this. And the idle class, of course, is a great juxtaposition of that class uh, style of comedy. But just so many great gags while he's back at the mansion and the millionaire is just pouring liquor into Chaplin's pouch. <laughs> <laughs> Just submerging his junk in liquor. (laughs) There's a good amount of time where it's just, you know, good hangout, you know, popping bottles with Mm -hmm. your rich friends. You know, he's going through them like he doesn't care. You know, I think another interesting thing, too, about this is kind of like, and I don't know if he invented this trope. It's probably maybe it was in books, but definitely like, you know, I think we've mentioned the romantic comedy trope of pretending to be something you're not. It's like, a, it's a huge percentage of romantic mm-hmm. comedies. And like, I feel like Chaplin, I, I, did he do this before uh, City Lights? I don't know. I feel like maybe he has, maybe not. But not that I can think of, but I feel like it's probably there if I just go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, I feel like this, has especially to... in the shorts, there's so many yeah. like narrative tricks in some of those shorts that I'm sure he pulled something off like that before. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just like, you gotta think this is where the beginnings of that trope uh, starts. Mm-hmm. That's cool. The invention of lying. <laughs> the invention of, it would lead to the invention of lying <laughs> by Richard, Richard Gervais. <laughs> but you know, you can't blame Chaplin for that. I don't think we need to go full name on old Rick, Ger- old Dick Gervais. Dickie G. That is a movie that I watched while I was sick uh, and I stayed home from school and it was on like HBO or something. And I was so like, even as a kid, just like so frustrated by that. Well, also kind of like half asleep because I was sick. But even through the haze of like a flu or whatever, I was like, this movie sucks. Not to Not to go too deep on Invention of Lying, but I think also... When I was a young man, I saw that movie and like it, it had the like British humor, like Simon, I think Simon Pegg's in that. Maybe he's not even in that. But like when I was young, that was definitely I'm like, all right. Yeah, this is what adults watch, like British people talking funny. Yeah. So if I see Invention of Lying, I'll be like a grown up watching Who's the grown-up. British guy who was in a couple late Fairly Brothers movies. Oh, he's, oh, he's fuck. good. Stephen Merchant. Yeah. yeah is yeah, he yeah. in it? 
I think yeah, it's, it might be him. Yeah, I, I have sense. no recollection. Well, that's of this his movie. big collab. He's collabed with Gervais a few times, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, back to the back to a lesser comedian, uh, <laughs> yeah. this, this old tramp. No, come on. Uh, I can't even. I can't even joke about that. <laughs> yeah, sacred cow on the show of badness is Ricky Gervais. <laughs> One of the worst of all time. You heard it here first. He wants you to believe we live in a godless society where Chaplin shows, you know, the presence of God and grace in all of his movies. In his uh, direction. <laughs> yeah. Truthfully. I was trying to go Armand on it, but I didn't really have the land yeah, to finish. If you were saying like Malik or something, maybe that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll do a little editing on that. Let me just <laughs> let me get a punch in of you saying Malik clean. Uh, that's funny when you're like, well, that one was, we'll edit that one out. <laughs> I'll step up next time. A little more clean here. A little more concise. So he goes out on the town, uh, goes drunk driving with the millionaire, which is always fun. Uh, Great driving gag after they hop out of the club. And when they're in the club, by the way, I mean, again, we talked about camera movement in a 20s nightclub last week. But in this one, it's so great when the band starts playing that song. Uh, Of course, a great like sync sound you know needle drop in a silent film uh and the camera just like swoops through this crowd of people that start dancing together uh, and of course you get some funny dancing and chaplin hitting a woman's bottom that he had originally set on fire <laughs> some great gags that that's where a lot of the like class comedy you know kind of thing comes in is the drunk tramp at the fancy uh nightclub dinner dancing place uh, just like running amok through everyone's bourgeoisie weekend entertainment (laughs) i mean i think that's the fish out of water stuff works so well for like class stuff just because there are like so many bourgeois rules Mm -hmm. that he's breaking don't touch people's asses yeah don't swallow the whistle yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's a great bit again using sound where this guy's trying to sing a song and chaplin swallowed a whistle so every time he breathes it whistles (laughs) and it's just like denying the pleasure of like the filmed musical which was already a thing at this point you know a couple years into sound film she's like no we're gonna keep doing the thing where i breathe funny (laughs) and it works i love it also another great gag once he's rolling around in the millionaire's car uh before he goes to pick up his blind girl he uh like sees a rich guy throw a cigar down on the ground and then like fucking pulls his car pulls the rich guy's car over on the sidewalk and beats another homeless guy (laughs) who's trying to pick it up (laughs) knocks him to the ground picks up the cigar and gets back in the car it's just like oh man that hustle mentality (laughs) carrying over from last week snow in the bluff style chaplin just going to town on the other people in the neighborhood Sure. I mean, he does have that hustle mentality. You know, he's got that social upwards mobility with exactly. his uh, millionaire friend. You know, I this might be, a, I don't know, maybe the tone's a little off of this. But, you know, when I saw the, the rich uh, alcoholic friend killing himself, I'm like, that's a good way to make friends. Like, just try to <laughs> kill yourself in public and see if anyone stops you. And then that person stops you, you're like, you're my friend for life now. Thank you. <laughs> that is a really good way to make friends. <laughs> If any of our listeners are <laughs> extremely wealthy, yeah. this only applies to you. Yeah. Uh, so, as we mentioned, the bipolar nature of the eccentric millionaire character, he then forgets who Chaplin is and abandons him, and the butler takes the car back, and he needs to find a way to help out 
the love of his life, the blind girl. And we do keep saying that because it is one of those movies where her character's name is the blind girl or a blind girl rather. Um, but you know, her grandma that she lives with is behind on rent. Uh, you know, Chaplin wants to get her this fancy eye surgery. Uh, also just, just, I messed the, up the chronology of this, but there is a great bit of him peeping on the blind girl uh, through her window, standing on a barrel, like, uh, and then the neighbor comes out and like kicks him for being yeah. a peeper. And he runs away. That's a that's a great bit right there. I think every, every like movie ever made about a blind girl that's you know we'll say this maybe directed by men always has a scene where it's like you just look at the blind girl and like you you like no matter how good or touching the movie is like it'll still have a scene where it's just like you look at the blind girl and you know that she can't see you you get a good look at her so i'm calling out men uh so then he has the date uh you know so he loses the friendship of the millionaire still has to try and impress this girl and he has a date coming up with her so you know he takes some more jobs you know he's pushing a wheelbarrow down the street i don't know what that <laughs> job is i've seen this movie five times do not know what that wheelbarrow job is <laughs> no 20s jobs they're all just stupid bullshit like that moving something from one place to the next hey, shoveling hey, you dirt. need a day's work come move this wheelbarrow <laughs> yeah I was going to say, I feel like the only jobs in those type of movies are like piano movers. It's literally just like people moving shit around. <laughs> Look, the, new, the the modernism of the city was coming and people needed to furnish their apartments. It's true. I mean, I, I think that is all right. Maybe to, let's get serious here. And like, I think, you know, what I was getting at earlier where it's like everyone he meets is kind of under distress or something like that. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like I don't know. I feel like this is Chaplin saying something about like the nature of people who who live in a city, you know, it's city life where it's like, you know, this, uh, you know, bar or like uh, culture or whatever, where, you know, you make best friends and in the morning you forget them or whatever. Yeah. And you don't think about them because that's just your cosmopolitan, you know, playboy lifestyle. I mean, you get caught up in that hustle. It's like you see it in the beginning, like where everyone overlooks the tramp, like obviously for like class reasons. But I think like in, I don't know, Chaplin is definitely smart enough to pick on and pick up on that it's just a, a fact of city True. life that you get lost in the mix everyone's moving so fast you know some people lonely souls get left behind exactly so you have the great like a uh, set piece date where he's pretending to be rich and uh telling the blind girl how he's gonna pay for her surgery and the rent and everything uh he you know but the uh, the wheelbarrow factory is not, you know, the wheelbarrow pushing factory is not paying him enough. So he has to go next door to the boxing factory. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like rewatching. I'm like, I forgot. Oh, yeah. They're next door to each other. Yeah, because you see it in the scene before. You see the boxing poster in the background, yeah. which I honestly did not catch until last time I watched it, I think, which was like the fourth time I saw the movie. <laughs> kind of embarrassing now thinking back to how obvious the placement of that poster is. But, you know. Uh, I'll just chalk it up to Chaplin being a god of mise-en-scene yeah. <laughs> and set design. It is great, like, minimalist set design uh, that harkens back to his earliest, like, his two reelers that he made in 1915 even, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, at the same time, is using all of these extras and, like, kind of getting out into this faux, like, real city. Uh, mm-hmm. And I love that progression in his work. So he signs up for a fight. It's supposed to be an easy fix. You know, you go down in the fifth or whatever. 
Uh, but the guy who he sets the fight up with then is wanted by the cops and he flees. So now Chaplin has to just fight this fucking Ted Cruz looking guy <laughs> who would definitely be like the head of his local NRA chapter nowadays. <laughs> like he would be cast as a cop in a Toby Hooper movie. Kinda. Yeah. And I feel like with American filmmaking, this is as close as action choreography you're going to get yeah. with this boxing scene and how very exact and fluid this is all of Chaplin's comedic set pieces are so fluid and build up momentum in a way that's so effortless, but it is like, it's, you know, it's a difficult thing to do to time comedy in that manner. And he was always very good with that. And I think the boxing scene is one of the more intricate set pieces where, you know, you just have, uh, you know, him following the ref. It's just him exploring this boxing ring. It's like, where's gag potential? Where's the gags? Where's the gags? He finds them. In terms of like timing, I think it's I really love how long it takes to get to the actual boxing match. Like you get as many like locker room gags as possible as you can beforehand. And you're just in anticipation for like what like what the fuck? How is Chaplin going to get his ass handed to him? (laughs) But like I love him like when it's the other boxer that comes in. It's not fixed anymore. Chaplin just being coy and a (laughs) fat. Just like that is flirting with him. He's doing the Bugs Bunny kiss thing. I I love the locker room gags throughout and how it like has its own arc of him being kind of uncomfortable looking at the milieu around him, but safe because he knows he's going to get the easy money to just being absolutely terrified and trying anything he can. He gets all the uh, good luck charms from the one boxer who has them. And then that boxer comes back. Uh, completely knocked out and he tries to rub off the good luck charms <laughs> and like Just such basic gags but they're so perfectly executed well i mean i think there's a very easy way to do him in the boxing match which is just like he gets his ass kicked immediately and you don't go that easy route it's like chaplin like puts up a, a decent fight in this he's he's dancing around i mean he's like mostly putting up a good fight by just being like like scurrying out of the way (laughs) yeah and i love the wire work here too you said it's the closest you get to good american action choreography and yeah it's like hong kong style wire work for a few shots and the wires are visible in the hd transfer but honestly i don't remember seeing the wires the first time i watched this movie and i feel like it's only like an hd that you can really see them that well and you know people watched doopy ass vhs's of this for like 40 years almost, you know, uh, th- this is an eternal classic that probably only started looking super crisp 10 years ago. If that, yeah. Hey, thanks. Criterion collection. Thank That's you. Right. Criterion. Collection. <laughs> <laughs> the one time we will ever praise them <laughs> for doing good by Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> uh, yeah. I've never, I've never noticed the wires really before. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'm just a, I mean, maybe maybe we were, I was asking the question if true love was blind, but I think this week we might be discovering if Malcolm is blind. (laughs) Come on, man. (laughs) Didn't have to go there. (laughs) So he loses the fight after dancing around the referee in such a great balletic fashion and, you know, doing classic, as I said, Bugs Bunny earlier, he really goes Bugs Bunny mode in the ring uh, when he's not just kind of flying and going uh, Superman mode. (laughs) Uh, And of course, he does lose the fight because, come on, we we can stretch the limits of realism so much for the tramp, but not quite that far. And honestly, watching him take a beating is like so cinematic, especially with 
you know, he has a couple of needle drops that go throughout this whole movie and that really depressing uh, horn lead uh, that comes in when he gets knocked out is so perfectly deployed there. able to meet the drunken man again uh and we get just a such a spectacular set piece of him getting the money despite being broken physically and mentally uh as the drunken uh billionaire recognizes or millionaire recognizes him uh gives him the money but little do we little do they know uh the house is being robbed and it's such like basic silent film even like griffith level like 1905 level uh use of suspense here where you just get that basic two shot of the two robbers and then they go hide and the people come in and then that's your suspense for the next 3 minutes and it works perfectly so that scene ends with a great chase as the cops are called uh the millionaire uh returns to his state of not recognizing chaplin he turns off all the lights and makes an escape in one of the more like succinctly choreographed you know kind of physical comedy uh really action physical bits physical action bits of uh this film but you know he's not going to be out there for long and uh the tramp is then arrested uh, after he's able to give that money to his blind love so she can get her surgery while he goes to jail. I didn't know they had a cure for blindness this long. Yeah. I don't know why more people don't do it. Try. I did think of that when this <laughs> popped up in this movie. It's just like, it's kind of a funny detail. Yeah. But hey, hey, it works. And um, no, I think I think the when he gives, you know, the blind girl, uh, you know, the money that he, you know, he received... It is. I fu- I truly do get kind of like the emotional implications in that moment. It's just like, oh yeah, like this of course is obvious, but it's like, if she can see, then she could see that you know he's not a he's not a baller, he's not a millionaire. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, just in like the selflessness of you know the tramp character, this tramp's a real good guy. You know, it, he never. It's never really like a problem or an issue for him, like a dilemma. He's like, yeah, that comes up. Other than peeping and drunk driving, he has a flawless <laughs> record. Yeah. Hey, we all, you know, we all, <laughs> we all peep from time to time. We all watch I was gonna a movie. We all drunk watch a, drive. Oh boy, this is an anti-drunk driving podcast. No matter Bro, what, but, if you're listening to this on but. the road and you have an ounce, pull over. Even if you're not drinking, if you're listening to this while you're driving, pull over. True, you could just drink. look at the scenery around. Yeah. You. you could drink one beer while you're driving. Oh no, no. If that's the only beer you had that yeah. day, because yeah. you're not drunk. Extended Clip is the only sober film podcast. <laughs> Zero beers for you. <laughs> Damn, okay. I'm sure we're not the only, but... <laughs> so, uh, Chaplin does a nine-month stint, uh, which I, I don't know how fair that is. Yeah. <laughs> what did he rob? 20 bucks? <laughs> I mean, if like... For a, a flight to Vienna mm. in those times, probably 20 bucks. Yeah, well, doesn't he doesn't he get a K like one thousand? Yeah, he gets a thousand. Yeah, um, well, I mean, even today, like if you steal like a thousand dollar TV from Walmart, they'll give you a felony. Yeah. So, you know, that's the <laughs> law for you. <laughs> that is unfortunately the law. So, uh, Chaplin does his stint. He comes out. We see the blind girl. Well, now we just see the girl, and uh, she's working at the store. And she's looking out the window as the two boys who sexually harassed the tramp earlier in the film 
are up to their old <laughs> deeds again and they're teasing him on the street they're saying oh you bum <laughs> something like that uh and they get him in a goofy situation where he's chasing after them and uh then we get one of the most heartbreaking finales i've ever seen where she sees him through the glass uh he can't even express anything to her uh he's just like completely strict and he still has uh does he still have the flower in his vest pocket uh he like he has it i think oh. in his hand in his hand yeah, yeah 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 and uh then she comes out to just like see like what's up with this weirdo who just won't stop staring at her while she's at work and from his touch uh when she gives him a new flower she recognizes that it is her old friend the quote-unquote millionaire but truly the little tramp and uh yeah, one of the great exchanges in silent film dialogue, you know, yes, I can see now, uh, as the screen goes to black after we get that cute little tramp coy smile after she says that she can mm-hmm. see, and uh, the music still plays for another 15 seconds or so after yeah. the end pops up, and it's just like such an emotional catharsis that isn't even fully clear the implications of it which makes it even that much more cathartic because it's just the glances you know and that's all it is and it's the weight that you carry with all of the film that led up to those last couple of glances oh yeah i was gonna say like the fact that it doesn't like show like a a big kiss or an embrace it is like this fleeting moment of joy that chaplin has just to be recognized as very very powerful and like mm-hmm. especially how it's you know set up with him he tries to run away he tries to like you know you know he thinks that you know if this is revealed it's gonna ruin any everything and like you said it is a little bit more in- ambiguous but i i feel like i don't know every time i watch the ending i kind of interpret it a little differently or mm-hmm. something like that i remember when i first saw it i kind of like i was very on the negative side i thought like she was you know, she's like, oh, like I could see now or whatever. Yeah. But as with each rewatch, I do kind of get a more positive feeling from this, you know, just with Chaplin's charming smile. Well, and with her look too, right yeah. before that title card of now I can see where she just has that like mental recognition that takes a few seconds. Like you see her. It's such insanely good silent acting mm-hmm. uh, where you just see her thought process on her blank face. Which is something that's so, I mean, it's obviously through editing and the rest of the storytelling that fills in uh, the context there. But uh, it's like really remarkable how much is expressed in those last two glances. No, it's such a great scene that it like, I don't know, just thinking about it has you thinking about every gestural move they make, every Mm -hmm. single small action with their face or, you know, their hands that they do is just Chaplin's really in touch to like this human emotion and how it's expressed and makes you get in touch with it too (laughs) yeah i think that like i don't know it's the romantic plot to this really adds a great contrast with like these huge maximal like expressive moments where a lot of the comedy will play out in like a wider frame and just like i don't know the fact that it at the end it comes down to something so small and gestural like that and throughout their relationship it's just very beautiful to focus on those precise details. You got a bullet rating for this one, JT? Five fucking bullets. Masterpiece. What Five you? bullets. Damn. Load them up. Me too. <laughs> Shoot that fucking tramp dead in the street. <laughs> I don't think we've had a sixth sense shot of the five bullets in a while. That's a, that's the ultimate sixth sense. And for those yeah. who are new to the podcast and are saying, what do you, what? What? 
uh, I don't know when we coined the term, maybe the third or fourth episode, but uh, when we all have the same rating, uh, you know, because it's each of our two cents. Why am I... Well, I think you can put it together from here. We're big fans of M. Night Shyamalan on this podcast. That's what I'm trying to say. What we're saying is that it doesn't quite make sense. We don't quite understand it ourselves. But does the sixth sense quite make sense? True. Six God. Alright, we'll be right back on Extended Clip. This was a long one. extended clip malcolm in the middle is everybody's favorite segment so why don't you start it off malcolm (laughs) hey for those new listeners i'm malcolm bomb i'm part of the extended clip podcast um and a movie i watched this week was norbit directed by brian robbins now you look at brian robbins career um you know maybe maybe people wouldn't quite say auteur but hey he directed varsity blues i like that movie a good football movie we also got Good Burger, you know, like nostalgia. Take a bite of that. But uh, Norbit is, there's not a lot of people who have a lot of nostalgia for Norbit, except I remember my I, my cousins telling me to check it out back in the day. But um, Norbit was, you know, very critically derided. People thought Eddie Murphy had kind of gone too far with his fat suit antics. And, you know, and I think that's why what makes this movie kind of entertaining is just like how... I mean, he really uses this fat suit to great effect. <laughs> like, he's wielding it around. Plenty of gags. There's just, there's like repeating gags where the Rasputia, uh character, you know, f- played by Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy plays Norbit, Rasputia, and Mr. Wong. Um, mm. Which, that's aged a little bit. Mm. That's also a reason this movie was critically derided. And, you know, if that's your reason for disliking the movie, that's a fair reason. But I mean, it's just this. This movie is just so it knows what it is. It's very ridiculous. I mean, I think it knows how funny the name Norbit is. So there's just a lot of <laughs> jokes where people are like, "What's up, Norbit?" Or like, it's like you know, he's dancing in a circle, like, "Go Norbit, go Norbit, go Norbit." That that does happen. And um, I don't know. There's people's are like things people say about the Simpsons, right? That's like, like oh, you know, everyone's a caricature, right? It's like this is just turned up to the extreme where everyone's just like, like a, like a, like a peckish nerdy guy or like a alpha guy who just wants to punch through doors or just a loud screaming fat woman who, you know, hates everyone. And it's not for everyone, but I don't, and I don't think it's, it's not particularly good. I'm not going to be, you know, I would love more than anything to be like, Norbit actually a good movie. Here's the reason why it's socialist or something like that. Um, socialist leanings. Oh, of Norbit. socialist Norbit is true. Great. If I if I was just like if literally you know to those not you know, not listening to this, I might start saying like, oh yeah, Norbit's real socialist. I'll get a bunch of people to watch it, and it'll they'll be, be mad at you and be like, what are you talking <laughs> yeah. about? But you will get people to and, watch it, and of course you could I, sell like suit socialist guys on Norbit is actually socialist. What does suit socialist mean? It's like, like Nathan J. Robinson, exactly. Ooh. So that it's type only of... guys who wear funny suits. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's definitely a type of leftist. The overdressed leftist, the socialist dandy. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but they'll go for it. And you know, it's hard not to mention 
pod favorite, Jerry Lewis. Because Norbit, I mean, he, the Norbit character is very, you know, Lewis, Lewisian or whatever. You know, he, he is like a nervish, skittish guy who's like running around trying to meet the demands of people. And, uh, you know, also... Jerry Lewis, he'd like to play different races as well. So, so you know, if you want to see the last Jerry Lewis movie that was made, watch Norbit starring Eddie Murphy. And Eddie Murphy is a funny guy. Oh, he's Eddie, super funny. And, and he's very funny as Norbit. The Rasputia character, maybe it's just a bit too extreme to be always funny. You could only take so many fat jokes. But, hey, and also just a random thing of note, one of the... Only movies where uh, Charlie Murphy is collaborating. He co-wrote this with Eddie. Oh, wow. I think we actually talked about that on pod like a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Their lack of on-screen collaborations. But there you go. Yeah, I've I've actually seen both come to think of it. It's uh, Norbit and Vampire in Brooklyn. So if you want the Murphy Brothers uh, duology, I haven't seen Vampire in Brooklyn, but I feel like I saw most of the Eddie Murphy releases of this era, uh, especially the PG ones. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of like kids movies with slight edge you know uh i think was doolittle pg or was that just g i I think it was pg yeah daddy daycare was pg well daddy daycare infamously uh had the cut to like or not the cut the the gag where the kid shits on the ceiling uh in the trailer (laughs) i remember busting up in the trailer at that you know the great use of the kuleshev effect there where you see (laughs) Eddie Murphy look up and we don't see what's on the ceiling but you know due to the physicality due to the physical space of the two shots we know that it is someone's doo-doo that got up there yeah I mean you know you see someone like Sandler who we constantly champion kind of getting some love from like I don't know uh, letterbox people or whoever whoever's hyping up Sandler and nowadays. we love Sandler we love yeah. Sandler too I think Murphy deserves some of that love I think okay. Murphy deserves some of that love we I, to, yeah I saw Norbit uh, with a couple of my friends for my friend's birthday his mom took us to Norbit mm-hmm. and then to uh, I think Benihana or no a different a Benihana style like tap and table restaurant called Musashi yeah and uh I got to say, I don't remember him playing an Asian character. And the fact that I remember going to one of those restaurants instead (laughs) speaks Uh, uh, to, uh, you know, cultural brainwashing. I don't know. Yeah, It's funny because like you think it's just going to be like he's just doing that at the first 10 minutes of the movie. And then he just shows back up as that character (laughs) and just integrates it into the rest of the plot. Jeez. (laughs) At least when Jerry did it, it was always like a five minute escapade into racism. Like in the Big Mouth, he does an Asian guy again. But it's like this little... 10 minute segment toward the third act that you can kind of just fast forward through. I mean, that's what's also funny. It's like to a certain point in the third act, there's like no more jokes to be had with this Asian character. It's just Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It's Eddie Murphy's surrogate or Norbit's surrogate father. So there's like touching moments between Norbit and, you know, uh, his Chinese father. It's, I mean, yeah, it goes, it's, it, it is, it does, it does tonally, it tries to go for like something sweet and you're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. Like this is a, a movie where like a, a woman in a fat suit is like, running children over because of how fat she is we don't need any sentimentality here that's that's what's holding it back like if it was just a completely ugly movie then it would have been it would have been a masterpiece but it's like if it was little nicky type tone yeah Damn. see i think yeah he should have gone full nicky yeah 
I'm ready to go home and just <laughs> fucking watch Norbit. <laughs> Fuck the rest yeah, of that that was, that that was the podcast. Let's get out of here, boys. Any film has ever been sold on this pod. And you gave it like a two and a half or something. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> let's throw on Norbit. Honestly, that might be the most positive review of Norbit that exists. So check it out. Check out Armand White on the subject as True. well, possibly. A real gentleman's two and a half. Uh, JT, did you watch anything of note this week? Um, Yeah. I mean, I kind of am going to talk around it because we've already talked about it on the podcast. But um, after watching uh, a Play Misty for me, uh, which will be, was available on the Patreon now. Now it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> Limited time only for that episode. It's always there. We're doing these episodes out of order, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's, uh, you go fucking give but us But you can money, listen to Patreon. our Play Misty episode on yeah, Patreon. Patreon. Later, uh, we'll do the Patreon. Of course, I just I like to I like to shill it out in uh, in more than one segment. You know me; I'm all about the business. Um, but I watched watching play Misty for me. I got me yearning for Eastwood, and um, I was able to show a roommate and a good friend of mine um, Sully for the first time, and he loved it. I just you can tell. You look over, Sully's having an emotional moment on the phone with his wife. What's that? There are tears in your boy's eyes. <laughs> you know that's it's a it's a hitter. And I uh, have been able to get him uh, into Eastwood from like Richard Jewell, and now like Sully fucking sold on it. But I just wanted to like bring a, bring a conversation okay. piece to the table in this middle segment. It's what like I don't know to non like movie brained folks. What have been some like interesting directors or like movies you've had some successful pitches okay. with? Because we don't have any fucking email questions this week. <laughs> I'm sure. Let's. Uh... I have an interesting answer already. I I remember my brother, my little brother, doesn't watch many movies himself. You know, like most teenagers, just watches like YouTube videos stuff like that. And uh, you know, I was back home from college, and he's like, you know. Uh, you know, I'm studying movies, so he's like, you know, let's watch one. And for some reason, or I think I was already going to watch one. I was going to watch Pickpocket. And uh, he watched it with me. He's like, that was really good. And he really enjoyed it. Never checked out any. Probably <laughs> hasn't watched a movie since. Maybe he was also lying to me to make me happy. But it, I think it was just interesting. He was like, yeah, Pickpot. That was cool. Damn. Um, before I answer, I wanted to say thank you for bringing Sully back to the podcast. And, you know. I did a really embarrassing thing when we reviewed it on the podcast. And because we were talking about The Birds, which I think is like one of the best movies ever, I only gave Sully four and a half bullets in comparison, oh. kind of. But Sully is an easy five bullet pick. Uh, and it's like only gone up in estimation since I've rewatched scenes of it since we've done the pod. And it's like a movie that you watch that many times. You kind of can't give it lower than a five. True. Like if it's a movie that you want to watch literally every night for the rest of your life, <laughs> like I feel about Sully, uh, it's a five, baby. I mean, I think this is the third time I've watched it this year. So nice. that's, uh, I think I've watched it seven times according to Letterboxd, but I've also yes. just like thrown it on all the time and done other shit, you know. I, I, you know, I remember, I think Sully came out when I was first, you know, coming to college and I think I saw Sully with my parents and then they just left. <laughs> like that was, that was the last thing, you know, last thing they did before they <laughs> dropped me off for college so that we watched Sully together. That's, that's great. Yeah. That's that like was. ceremonial. Yeah. It rules. We all, we all, we were all in agreement. We're like banger. You know? Damn. I'm trying to think of directors that I've put people on to, but I can't. I guess one of my friends who isn't really movie pilled, I guess, uh, my friend James, 
one time I went over to his house and just like he asked for some movies. So I brought my hard drive and I think like I gave him uh, Vampiros Lesbos by uh, Jess Franco and he reportedly loved it. Oh, hell yeah. And I hope he wasn't just saying that. No, no, I'm sure he wasn't. I think we we talked about it, you know. Uh, And I I was very happy to hear people, you know, delving into the Euro sleaze uh, before watching any other, you know, a lot of motion pictures that people would consider major. Yeah. Yeah. I guess also just a random, this is kind of, it's kind of an answer to your question, but it's like, I remember me and my, I had a friend who was, you know, kind of a, a Woody Allen fan at the time, you know, it was a little more hip. And then I had a friend who just wasn't watching, doesn't really watch movies at all, had really had no idea who Woody Allen was. In 2016, we all got extremely high and saw Cafe Society, and we were just howling the whole time. <laughs> I don't know. It's just funny that we all really, like, we were all like, damn, that was really good, Cafe Society. Like, we were just, like, <laughs> so hype on Cafe Society when... If I think if I rewatch Cafe Society, I might not think of it as that it's one high. that you want to leave at the movies. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. I want. I, I also would like to leave Cafe Society at the ArcLight Sherman Oaks, where I saw it. You know, <laughs> at ten in the morning on opening yeah. day. I saw it at the Nick in Santa Cruz. Wow. Check it out, Eddie. Have you watched any movies you'd oh, like to talk about? Geez, I forgot that's the segment we yeah. were doing. We were so off course and derailed from our usual format of the show and you know as kind of a classic structuralist i'm (laughs) almost offended sometimes much like clint eastwood i like to take a little digression from away from our main uh our main focus uh okay i finished the de palma filmography this week uh i watched get to know your rabbit which is an extremely strange movie starring one of the smothers brothers as uh, an aspiring magician who takes lessons from orson wells who teaches a very specific specific type of roller skating magic <laughs> unfortunately you do not see arson wells get on the roller skates in this film as great as that would be but i feel like De palma is using orson's presence in the first 30 minutes in a really interesting way where his first two scenes he has his back to the camera pretty much the whole time and he's always in the background but then once he does make his entrance it is very grand and you hear him instructing this class for a longish period of time and then taking in the main character as a mentor and there's a really great shot of them just like walking along a harbor uh or like along some water or whatever uh pretty indiscreet location (laughs) Uh, but just orson schooling him about like being a magician is so enthralling and then it's a movie about just being a road dog you know getting out there doing your thing doing the craft that you love for the love of the game uh and you know de palma might have been more influenced by hitchcock than orson wells but he definitely like carved out a legend spot for Orson in this yeah. movie. Uh, it's a very respectful role. I, I was just gonna quickly say it's like it's funny that like Fincher uses magician for Wells as a pejorative, whereas yeah. De Palma finds it as one of his great qualities. Yeah, exactly. This is like when Orson is scrapping together funding for F for Fake, pretty much like that era of his career where. I'm not sure if De Palma had seen The Immortal Story, uh, but you would have to think that De Palma is still holding the man in great respect. Mm-hmm. We'll be right back on Extended Foot. To music. Mm-hmm. And I remember feeling very alienated at a friend's party because they were talking about the Red Hot Chili Peppers <laughs> and I d- had no idea. You didn't know who the Peppers were? I mean, I just didn't have any connection to them. 
But like, you didn't even hear on the radio Black Bandana Sweet Louisiana? <laughs> <laughs> no, my folks like are like old fucking people who would not who would like not listen to that type of music. Damn. Well, we're back here on the Red Hot Chili Peppers podcast. Uh, I figured I had to start the mic because we were talking about Red Hot Chili Peppers for quite a while. That there. was it was getting to be like ten minutes about Red <laughs> Hot Chili Peppers. Could have just filled out the episode, not done the B movie there. Uh, Would have hit an hour, but anyway. We're back to talk about the B-movie, Three Days of a Blind Girl, the 1993 Category 3 film by Chan Wing Chu, starring Veronica Yip and Anthony Wong, everybody's favorite Hong Kong sleaze legend. Uh, yeah, this was my first, because I'd seen Wong in uh, more minor roles in other you know movies he was in, but this was the first you know full experience I got of him, and I gotta say, what a what a guy, what a charismatic, oh, yeah. like a like a negative charisma type force that he has, and I mean, I just loved his outfits, you know, the shorts he would wear, you know, I think uh, I think he's he's a a real driving force of this movie as the you know perverted villain. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved his supporting roles, but I guess this is maybe the first time I've seen him unleashed as a full-fledged movie star you know the Mm -hmm. other the other things i've seen him in he's upwards of being like the third character maybe uh or more of like a minor character who has a couple of very impactful scenes you know you watch him in films like infernal affairs hard-boiled you know he's like oh this guy's a fucking great actor but then you see him in something like this where his manic energy and manipulation and dark comedy are all brought to the fold and physical comedy are all brought to the fold in like such a movie star performance yeah this is like this movie like i mean i was expecting from like the uh the letterbox poster of a of a tied up lady Mm -hmm. that it was gonna get freaky but this is we're we're getting nasty with it again this Mm -hmm. is like a an an intense like Mm -hmm. tense ride although i will say i i don't know for some reason i don't i guess i was i was just uh thinking thinking darkly but uh I just I thought it was going to be even worse. To be honest, it yeah. is. It is I mean, somewhat they, tasteful. They're like restrained to a certain extent, yeah. but I think that just like makes it like more unsettling for me. Yeah. The fact that they dance like I think like you could definitely be extremely gratuitous, True. but it's still eh. it saves it towards the back end, and when yeah. it happens, it is like you're like here we go, yeah. nice, let's <laughs> dig in. Uh, another Anthony Wong supporting role I wanted to shout out. He's actually billed third in this. Is like a Hong Kong style, uh, like kind of an old school Hong Kong American movie ripoff of Magic Mike where it's called 12 Golden Ducks. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, uh, 12 guys who do pelvic thrusts in underwear. <laughs> like It's just a, it's a male stripper movie. Uh, or is it a male prostitute? No, it is a male prostitute movie. Yeah, I think they do both. I think they do a little dancing and a little effing. Private shows. Exactly. I mean, what? it's all sex work to me. Right? Is that the right take to have? <laughs> it's also yeah. yeah. I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know what the kids are that's, saying. These that's days. like you said it. Like that's all Greek to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, speaking of connections to other Hong Kong cinema, before we get into the meat of this one, the burglar that we see that we'll talk about partway through that kind of uh, upstages Anthony Wong for a brief moment in the film is played by director Fruit Chan. Oh, that's. Damn, yeah. I didn't know that. That's <laughs> Which hilarious. Is insane. Yeah. Uh I've seen the film Durian Durian by him, and he is definitely uh like a more art house Hong Kong director who I'm very intrigued by and want to look at more films by for sure. Uh but this film 
Category three, as we said, which is kind of Hong Kong's X rating, uh, you know, maybe not a direct translation there, but something close to that uh, for their industry. And it's a home invasion thriller uh, that really speaks to the competence of that national cinema movement. You know, it's a very stock premise uh, with a director who doesn't appear to be any sort of auteur. Uh, and you have this woman who's temporarily blind, perfectly convenient for her husband, who will be temporarily away, uh, leaving her alone and blind at the house when Anthony Wong arrives to torture her for a few days while she can't see. And it ends up just being like a super effective and nasty and kind of fun, dark comedic thriller, uh, despite not really despite not having an auteur at the helm, but really because of how great the, you know, Hong Kong movie stars, you know, Veronica Yip is a big uh, category three star as well, uh, and how great these performances are and how great kind of the house style of 90s Hong Kong filmmaking was. No, I think I think a, a big reason why this movie works, and it's one of those movies where it's kind of like a, a single house movie. A lot of horror movies and low budget movies of this type, they'll usually base their movie around a house and have people stay in it. And you know, kind of the when you're doing that, you're like, all right, how do we keep lively things up? Of course, you know, having a sadistic guy in there doing semantics, of course, that's gonna you know lively it up. But it's also just how they dole out information and like why he's here throughout it kind of keeps it intriguing and it's never quite too obvious. I mean, you kind of get it to a certain point, but it'll take just slight turns that keep, you know, just keep you interested. Yeah. And I like how it begins with this very like cookie cutter, like happy family style. I mean, obviously that's like kind of what it's like making fun of and like having some jokes with, like especially the dog that we cut to at various points, like outside in the rain, just named boy, (laughs) like watching this, from all appearances like this happy sort of couple at the beginning disintegrate until you find out like um he was cheating on her at certain points i like how it perverts that throughout and i think that adds to like the sinister quality of it yeah definitely i think both of what you're saying is perfect because yeah it's doling out that information slowly and like throughout the movie the kind of subtext of it becomes not just clearer, but just more complicated and dense with all the information that we learn as we go. And also just like on a basic uh, genre like level as a home invasion thriller, all of those set pieces are very effective. Mm -hmm. And there's also a lot of just like nastiness in between. Like you have cuts to Anthony Wong eating fucking hot dogs in close-up from her falling asleep the first night. Uh, Such an abrasive uh, cut to start the second of three days. (laughs) And as I mentioned earlier, Fruit Chan then comes in, uh, a burglar who then just like, ties up and assaults her like very quickly which is kind of not i don't know how to say but it compared to the systematic long game torture that anthony wong is going through you know obviously there's a contrast drawn in that in like how it's able to just like multiply the insane amount of trauma that this woman is going through in this short amount of time you know uh with just such a quick burst while anthony wong is outside looking at the beautiful landscape i guess yeah i mean it matches with what uh jt kind of saying about trying to like you know 
pervert, you know, this happy image, right? It's like, not only is there like Wong type creeps that are, you know, there's a reason that they're doing this. There's also just random perverts acting on their libido, creeping into houses yeah. and stuff like that too. And uh, you know, it's a, it's a dangerous place out there. As a, doesn't, doesn't, I feel like Anthony Wong tells her like, cause he leaves like, like three times within the, which is, I think is also great how it starts where like Anthony Wong kind of happens into this neighborhood and then, you know, he leaves and then it's raining. So he has a reason to come back Mm -hmm. and, you know, so it's hard to catch a cab and then he makes up, uh, you know, he leaves again, comes back in, sneaks on her, you know, she's temporarily blind. so, So, you know, she can't see him and then makes up that there's an intruder in the house and he like you know i don't think he leaves that time but uh well then he has to leave to get rid of the maid as well or maybe no he gets rid of her first he goes back to the maid to get uh the medicine that she had just picked up as well Mm -hmm. but yeah he is constantly leaving and like it's kind of teasing at her being able to escape if only she could see. And she does try to escape while blind still. But this and the one we're going to talk about on our Patreon both have that feeling of like there's a multiple uh, multiple scenes where it shows that the character can leave. And there is a world outside of this, whether it's the mansion in the Jess Franco film we're going to talk about or the house here. Uh but it's just like the forces around them and the characters uh, entrapping them it, like physically and psychologically that keep them there. Mm-hmm. There is a scene where uh, Anthony Wong's torturing her, gets her to admit who she has had sexual fantasies about, and she admits to Chow Yun-Fat. Haven't we all? It asks if she's also uh, had any fantasies about foreigners, such as Richard Gere. Which uh, which I think this is that, I mean, you know, it's kind of crass, but it's just like right before he pounces on her. But he goes into like this monologue about how like, you know, Richard Gere's a mature, stylized man. He's like, kind of like me. And he, <laughs> he prowls. And it's, just like, it's, it's very, it's kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we mentioned dark comedy earlier yeah. and it's like. We also talked about Visitor Q on the Patreon mm-hmm. a while back, and there is dark comedy to be found in these terrifying things. It's a fine line to walk because, yeah, it could become tasteless in an instant, and in a bad way, too. Sometimes movies like this can be tasteless in a fun way. I think yeah. this movie kind of is and self-aware of its own tastelessness, too. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, like, it winds up, I feel like, with a very easy kind of, like, feminist ending that, like, I don't, like, I I won't necessarily give too much credence to that because of, like, what precedes it. But Mm -hmm. the way it, like, teeters that line of, like, respectability with sleaze is, like, so well done and, like, leads to a bunch of, like, fun, like, exploitative set pieces. Like... especially the way it incorporates blindness, I think is really um, fascinating. Like one of the uh, initial, like very horrifying, but also kind of like weirdly playful scenes is when she's uh, in the shower and then Wong is just sort of doing the, like the classic middle school, I'm not touching you bit, (laughs) Um, but just like hovering over her body. And it's like, he's having like so much fun with it, but it's like horrifying. Like, cause it's just like her at like her most private, private and intimate moments it's i think i started you know howling when he was like 
cupping the water that fell off her body and like drinking it, like spitting yeah. it out, just doing like random shit, which is it, yeah. Yo, funny. his character definitely likes that random shit. Yeah, like when his character uh, gets a little older and the internet becomes like meme culture, he's definitely going to be into random posting uh-huh. if he's not in jail. Yeah, I think also. Oh wait, no, didn't he die at the end? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. I, um, before... <laughs> well, his son will be into random posting. <laughs> Like right before that scene too, you kind of get this very um, kind of strange slow-mo shot of like her, um, you know, disrobing and entering the shower. And I was like, this is like a good conflation of like, like pornographic aesthetics and like horror aesthetics. It's yeah. like the same time you think you're seeing from some sort of a like POV of like a perpetrator, but at the same time it's making you kind of... Uh, revel and like you know her getting undressed and how like slow it is and just the slow the choice of the slow motion kind of just is making it unsettling and appealing at the same time oh totally and i mean plenty has been written on the connection of like horror and pornography as you know bodily genres but Mm -hmm. also just in terms of voyeurism definitely right there yeah um i mean it all goes back to the hitchcock shower scene of course in psycho and there's even the cut to the drain in this one uh right after she gets uh scared by wong's touch and then you know flees out of the shower um so it really ramps up when anthony wong is on top of her uh and just like coming in his pants and then her husband comes home (laughs) (laughs) which is so funny because it's like wong's like insecurities in this movie just like cripple him in just like funny and weird times and ways and like i love that immediately even though you know he's he's just assumed the position of the bull yeah you know you know by bad means of course but still his book you know might be a w and then you know the <laughs> husband shows up and he immediately just turns into like a shivering wimp who yeah can't, like stand up for himself i mean he gets he gets the gat later but it is just <laughs> funny to see him like get the shit beat out of him you know just like no confidence in the world yeah no it's great they fight and uh she escapes much like Chaplin in the scene where the cops show up in city lights by turning off the lights uh and using her uh lack of sight to her advantage because they can't see either quite typical trope from like because there's it's a whole subcategory of films the blind Mm -hmm. siege films you know there's like 50 of them i'm sure Uh, and i'm sure all of them have some sort of variation of a character turning the lights off but hey it works quite well here (laughs) also i I love the house that they live in especially there's like this uh this art piece that in like their kitchen or whatever that's oh yeah uh, what like i don't i feel like i know that art is it, it's like modern era stuff or something like that but it's it's just like it, it's just so imp- i don't know it's just randomly impressive yeah. to me i mean it's like a basic thing but framing a character against a painting can result in some very strange and dissonant uh effects from the image and like this film does that great just putting sleazy actors acting out sleazy scenarios you know in front of classical paintings it almost seems like too easy of a thing but this film is able to like pull that kind of stuff off with such ease i mean it's also i mean to compare to the chaplain it's gag heavy and it is like you know it's it's also it's like what's wong gonna do next what you know weird thing you know feeding her dog meat or oh love, my god that's I, yeah. amazing i love that and i also love the scene where he just randomly kills a mouse yeah because <laughs> it, it, it's really out of nowhere but his fixation on it and kind of like that pov shot you get of him jumping on it. it's just it's such a a great digression yeah feeding uh feeding her boy the big fluffy dog uh was quite sad you know a vegan alert definitely for that <laughs> <one>. <laughs> 
Um, any final thoughts on this one before we wrap it up? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it four bullets. You know, I was. I really enjoyed this throughout. I think it is like because it is. It does go th- for that dark humor, and I think Wong is like he is unsettling when he needs to be, but is also just a funny presence, you know, and just a a funny character. And like even what you were saying, kind of like the the feminist ending, like it is going for that too. But it is also just like this woman's been like tortured for like three days, so she's just re- like, you know, she's just being randomly mean to people on the street. I think that's yeah, funny. that's you know that what is I mean? really yeah. funny. So um, I don't know. It's just it's it gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. I'm also giving this one four bullets for very similar reasons. Like it's just such a well done genre fair that I think is like specific enough um, with the characters, the setting, like Wong's performance, especially just like, and I mean, Veronica, yeah. Uh, yeah Veronica. Yep. Yeah. As well. Um, just phenomenal. And uh, I had so much fun watching this and also squirming at the same yeah. time. Oh yeah. I, I mean the, that finale, uh, really does a lot for Veronica Yip's performance and like her blind performance like we discussed with the Chaplin one you know you kind of do have to have that blank presence on your face which maybe is kind of you know unnecessary when you think about it uh, but that blank presence is still able to project so much emotion and then of course when she's regaining her sight during the climax the you know kind of emotional reckoning of her being in this familiar space of her house where now she's putting together where all of these terrible things have happened over the last couple days in this place where she's lived you know it's a good move to get out of there and go back to the city you know it ends with her on the city beating up a guy for a cab telling him not to fight women i mean hey uh can't disagree with that it's a fair enough message yeah Yeah. don't beat up women that's a totally fair we can all agree with that right three and a half bullets from me yeah let me make sure there's no email oh god we're recording this the same night as last week if you remember there was also a similar struggle <laughs> and so i'm sure there isn't a new email in the last you know hour since we've recorded this one but check, let's see check the spam folder just I read like an ad or email, whatever yeah. okay just go to your personal email and just tell us what's going on there <laughs> i'm just trying to pull up spam because there's nothing even in promotions let's see what emails i got recently yeah. on my not even any spam in the last 30 <laughs> days for extended clips here, I'll go personal email. Uh, no, we'll we'll just end it. Uh, okay, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I got an important COVID nineteen update from Council Member Mike Bonin. <laughs> His last name is B O N I N. Mike Bonin. That's funny. If you can't laugh at that, folks, uh, maybe check yourself into the loony bin. <laughs> As always, you can uh, help out this last segment by emailing us at extendedclippodcast at gmail.com. Now, maybe people just don't know what to email us. Maybe they're intimidated by it because, like, I don't know. I think in the past I've been like, I don't know, I've just randomly taken shots at emailers or something like that. So maybe maybe it's my fault. I'm sorry about that. Well, <laughs> Too alpha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just ask us anything, please. <laughs> well, please. Uh, our Patreon, patreon.com slash extended clip for $2 a month. You will get a new bonus episode every week. For $6 a month, you'll get a PDF every month, which we're going to figure out something for this month. Yeah. Uh, last week, we talked about Clint Eastwood's play Misty for me. This coming week, we're going to be talking about Jess Franco's A Virgin Among the Living Dead, a.k.a. Christina, the Princess of Eroticism. Next week on the main feed, December, the month of returning champions. Nice. And one new friend, but returning champions otherwise. 
Ryan Swen. That's right, our first ever guest. Oh, Ryan Swen will be coming right back to, uh, well, he won't be coming to the studio. <laughs> he lives in Georgia now, but he's going to be calling in over a digital intermediate to be determined to discuss uh, Simone Barbes or Virtue and Viva Erotica. So we're keeping it dirty and uh, we're keeping it clean stay hey stay <laughs> if you're jerking right now keep pumping all right, all right, keep right, pumping right, we got right, more right. on the way all right keep pumping all right, all right. come on you're almost there you're almost there that's all you're almost there no if there's one rule at extended clip it's no j-o-i <laughs> nope goodbye save it for the franco keep- <laughs>